James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, you said that some of them were first will be last, some are last will be first, and um, there are moments when that's um, really, really scary, and moments where that's really, really encouraging. Um, we come to before you right now uh, wanting to take what you say really seriously. And Lord Jesus, will you, will you teach us in such a way um, that you will recalibrate us to that narrow way, that narrow path, that, that narrow gate? Um, will you, if you need to make us last in some way right now, if you need to humble us in some significant way right now, then please do it urgently. We want to be a people who are attentive to what you have to say. And we want to receive your mercy, your grace, right there in a targeted fashion uh, where we most need it now. And, and that might not be a way that we're aware of. So whatever it takes, uh, get that done in our lives so that we walk out of here trusting you at a level that we haven't to this point. And we, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. Uh, please uh, keep the readings in front of you. And actually, we're going to focus on that first reading. That's an excerpt from the New Testament book of James. Um, and, um, okay, one of the deep-seated convictions of uh, the New Testament book of James, and really the whole of the Bible, is this. It's going to sound really, really simple, and it, it gets... Um, more difficult the more you think about it. But here's, here's, here's the basic thing. If you want to know how deeply you have internalized the message of Jesus, and if you, in other words, if you want to know how authentic your Christianity is, um, then ask yourself this question. Has 
Jesus changed the way I treat people. Now, that's a really simple question, isn't it? Let me complexify it. Take a look at the reading. Um, so James, there's the first reading there. James is the author of this, this excerpt. He paints a picture and he says, I'm going to paraphrase, he's going to say this. Listen, imagine two people walk into a Christian gathering. And one person that walks in is just the picture of the person you kind of wish you were. Like if you, uh, if, if it's your dream to be like, I don't know, a successful business leader, then imagine that the successful business leader that you kind of envy walks through the door. Or if you, uh, you, you really admire great writers, imagine a great writer that you really admire walks through the door. Imagine someone, whoever it is that embodies who you kind of wish you would like to be, imagine that person walks through the door. But then at the same time, imagine a poor person walks in the door. And maybe to make this vivid, imagine that this is the person uh, that you kind of, um, when you walked into the subway car this morning, you kind of looked at the person, you, you, you chose a few seats away. Imagine that person walks in. Now, in that situation, which person are you more likely to honor? And why are you more likely to honor one over and against the other? Now, here's what I think is kind of interesting. I imagine this scenario, and I read this text, and I sort of expect James to say something like this. I sort of expect James to say, to kind of give me a moral slap on the wrist. I sort of expect James to say something like, come on, you know it's not fair to treat rich people better than poor people. You know that everyone deserves a chance. Play fair, play nice, be nice to both, that kind of a thing. And if that's what James was saying, you know, it kind of strikes me as a plausible moral lesson that we could probably all agree with, I think. But here's the thing that's troubling about this passage. That's not what James says. James, Emmanuel, is devastating. Did you catch how devastating James is? He says something more like this. He says, listen, team, if you fail to honor the poor person that comes in. If somebody comes in and they're immediately on the surface, the kind of people you are tempted to ignore or uh, despise or exploit, and if you fail to honor them and instead you honor somebody else that on the exterior looks really compelling, then James says that is a catastrophic moral failure. He says it's an indication that the story of Jesus has not yet penetrated in your life to the level of changing how you treat people. And he says, and there's a little bit of a gasp when I say this, he says, you should consider yourself a perpetrator of evil and a transgressor of the moral law. And I'm like, James, come on. Does that, does that not strike you as a little bit crazy, a little bit over the top? But look, I, I, it's not me. Look, verse 4, if you dishonor the poor, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Evil thoughts, evil. Glance down to verse 9. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at just one point has become guilty of all of it. And at that point, I feel like this kind of moral weight kind of sinks over the top of me and it's troubling. Now, my guess is that most of us would agree that uh, poor people and rich people should be treated with equal dignity. I'm going to assume that we kind of vaguely agree on that, that that's still a kind of polite consensus. But James pushes us further. James says when Jesus really takes root in your life, he should make us not just vaguely be nice, but he should make us cherish people whom we would otherwise be tempted to ignore or deride or exploit. And James says there's a moral urgency that is just breathtaking. And so here's my question, Emmanuel. Why? Why is such the big moral payload? And what do we need to learn? Okay. Now, to explain the why, we're going to have to tell a big story. And the big story is told in short form in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. James says, listen, my beloved brothers. Look, he, he is being tender here. Listen, my beloved brothers. This is all set out of love. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? That's going to be important. And heirs of the kingdom? That's going to be important. Which he has promised to those who love him. Now, just real quick, that's going to show us that it's going to be more than just... Um, there's a... James wants us to be, pay attention to a, an aspect of character. Those who are rich in faith, who are heirs of the kingdom, who love God. But let me back up. That's the short version of the story. For the longer version of the story, we need to go to the book of Exodus. This is deep in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Bible. And if you imagine this, the book of Exodus, when the scene opens up, Egypt is just is already a massive uh, superpower of the day. Uh, when the scene opens up in the book of Exodus, the pyramids are already ancient. Uh, the Nile River is, uh, is producing extraordinary economic wealth. And, and around the Nile River Valley, the uh, farming is just flourishing. Humanity has never produced food the way the Nile River at this time is producing food. And uh, art and architecture and painting, all of it, all, it's already so advanced and so compelling that you can today, if you want to, go to the Upper East Side, go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and you can see a whole wing of their art that is devoted to the Egyptian artistic accomplishment. That's already in place when the scene opens up in the second book of the Bible. Egypt is absolutely the picture of what it looks like when humanity is just killing it, just doing fantastic. They're successful, they're innovative, and they're rich. They're everything every society wants to be. And then God enters the story. Now, what does God say when he's faced with such monumental human accomplishment? Do you remember? Does he say, oh my goodness, Pharaoh, we have got to figure out how to export your economic amazingness to every place because what you've done in the Nile is so remarkable. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. 
Uh, does he say, Pharaoh, we need to work together. Pharaoh, uh, you've got a great platform. I've got a great vision. We could go far. Let's team up. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. It's probably what I would say, but that's not what he says. Do you remember what he said? He says, and this is a paraphrase, he says, hey, Pharaoh, you know those poor people that you oppress that have built, the, on whose backs you've built a lot of these accomplishments that will later be admired in the Metropolitan Museum of Art? You know those people, well, they have a name. Maybe you didn't know their name, but those people you oppress, they're called Israelites. But I'm giving them a new name, Pharaoh. I'm gonna call them from now on my son. I'm gonna adopt them, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, I'm going to hatch a plan so that out of these enslaved peoples, I am going to shape a kingdom that will transcend every kingdom and every empire of the world. They will still be my kingdom when your, all of your society is just an archaeological curiosity. It's as if God says, Pharaoh, I'm going to put you on notice. The time has come. You need to get your rich, arrogant hands off my kid. And if you don't, I'm going to introduce you into something called justice. So let my people go. Now, that's a paraphrase, but that's a mashup of Exodus chapter 4 and Exodus chapter 9. You can go read it. Now, when that happened, Emmanuel, that was a revolution in the history of religion. Why do I say that? Because before this, and you can see this in Egyptian uh, religion, for instance, but it's more than that. Typically in polytheism before this moment, uh, religion was designed to bolster the powerful and the rich and the regime. So you had, it, was a, it was a pyramid. It was a pyramid. And at the top you had the gods, and then right underneath you had the king or the pharaoh or whatever they, they were called. And they were usually the son of the gods in one way or the other. Uh, and they were the highest status because they shared a little bit of the status of the gods. And then underneath them, the further you got from the center of power, the less dignity you had. It was a pyramid. And the poor at the bottom, the poor and the masses, they might be useful altogether, but they were not individually significant. But all that changed when monotheism, especially the book of Genesis and Exodus, came on the scene. Because it completely overturned that whole idea. Why? Well, the book of, the book of Genesis, just before Exodus, the beginning of the Bible, says that all humanity is created in the image of God. And what that did is it took the dignity that had previously been exclusive to the monarch and it distributed it to every single individual. And so for the first time in history, the individual human person mattered. And then that same idea gets amplified in the book of Exodus. Because what happens is God breaks into history and selects not the kings, not the pharaohs, not the priests, but a bunch of enslaved peoples. And he says, I'm going to gather together you together and I'm going to make you heirs of a kingdom that will last forever. That's Exodus 19. Okay, now take all this in your mind and come back to James because James doesn't say anything without the big story of the people of God behind him. James wants the people of Jesus 
to be a people who cherish those whom we might naturally ignore or deride or exploit. And why? Why is that such a big deal for James? The simplest answer is because that's what God's like. It's fundamental to God's character. And therefore, for James, if we dishonor the poor, even if we slight the poor, we're acting not like God, we're acting like God's enemies. We're acting like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, kind of, in the Bible, sets the standard for what it looks like to be an enemy of God. He was rich, he was arrogant, and the problem is he used his wealth through his arrogance to exploit others. And God brought him face to face with justice. And so when James sees a Christian community that is idealizing the rich and in a superficial way honoring them, but dishonoring the poor, James just hits the panic button. He says, verse 6, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? He's echoing Pharaoh. Are they not the one who drag you into court? I mean, they're experiencing this in the moment, though. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, for James, if we admire uh, corrupt people because they're rich and compelling in an exterior sort of way, and if at the same time we dishonor the poor, especially when we dishonor the poor who are actually rich in faith in a deep and profound way, for James, that's a betrayal of God's character. And it's a subtle way of aligning ourselves with God's enemies. Okay, but there's more to the story because, go back to Exodus, after uh, Israel comes out of Egypt, uh, God uh, gives them the law or the Torah. And part of the point of the law and the Torah was to teach Israel how to live in congruence with God's character. Remember, the God of Israel was a revolution in the history of human thinking, in the history of the world. He was nothing like the other gods. He did not match Israel's intuitive expectations of what they think God is probably going to be like. His character was counterintuitive. And so Israel had to learn very intentionally how to live in congruence with God's ethics, his revolutionary ethics. Now, one way that, that the law summarizes God's ethics is in verse 8. Look at verse 8. James quotes it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, you might notice we've already said that in our service earlier. Now, when James says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19. That's the next book after Exodus. And just a couple sentences before that line, it says this. Listen closely. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Now, Emmanuel, I want you to mark that because um, that verse, what I just read to you, is part of the intellectual origin story of the entire idea of equality and impartial justice. Now, but here's the thing. If you watch the unfolding story of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament, ends up they found it really hard to obey that commandment, really hard to love their neighbor as their self, in particular, uh, they were not usually tempted to be partial to the poor. They were more likely tempted 
to defer to the great because that's our intuition. But in doing that, they ended up resembling God's enemies rather than resembling God's character. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, we find out that God is not partial. God doesn't play favorites. He's not a tribalist. When Israel, even though they were heirs of the kingdom and of the promises, when they started acting like Pharaoh, when they started acting like Egypt, God responded by judging them with the same justice he judged Pharaoh with, and the end was the collapse of the nation of Israel, and Israel in 586 goes into exile in Babylon. All this is in James's mind. And so he tells us, verse 13, so speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Again, can you see why it's such a big deal for him? According to James, if we dishonor the poor, if we are infatuated with wealth and material success, and social status, especially when that blinds us to the deeper issues of character, it's like a little seed. A little seed. Does a little seed seem like a big deal? No, a little seed is little. Is little. But when it grows, it can become a bramble of injustice. And you can see this play out in Israel, Israel's history. You can also see it play out in Christian history. Uh, over the course of the last, last 2,000 years, when Christians have um, began to admire uh, the wealthy, the successful, and the powerful simply for their wealth, their success, and their power, when we begin to lust after those things, we inevitably end up like Pharaoh. And most of the injustices that are such tragedies in the history of Christianity can be rooted in this dynamic. And the most obvious example in our country, of course, as we all know, is when people who claim to be Christians enslaved Africans. But it's not just that. It's happened many other times, and we have to learn how to recognize it when we see it, especially within our own hearts. Because God will hold us accountable, and don't ever imagine he won't. The God of the Bible is a ferocious opponent of injustice. All the more when the perpetrators of injustice invoke his name. Please take that warning seriously. Now, I said at the beginning that I, I suspect that most of us would agree that we should um, treat poor people and rich people with equal dignity. My guess is that I think that's still a uh, polite consensus. I also suspect that that might become a more contested idea in the future. I really hope I'm wrong. But it seems to me that there is a growing normalization of derision. What does that mean? It seems to me that if you look at our public debate, or if you look at our online conversations, or even the way many Christian leaders speak, and I'm not so much talking about this congregation, although I, well, I want you to be aware of it. It seems to be it's increasingly normal to speak of other people in a way that dishonors them, that derides them, that dismisses them, that holds them in contempt, that dishonors. And sometimes 
we act like speaking that way is a form of courage. It isn't. We must be careful. There's another reason to think that the idea of equal dignity might become more contested. Um, as we become more and more secular as a society, as we remove ourselves more and more from God as he presents himself in scripture, it may become more difficult to explain why we should treat people with equal dignity. Here's an example. Um, Yuval Noah Harari, is a, he's a historian, he's a thinker, um, uh, not a religious believer, and he writes this, and I think it's insightful. The, quote, the liberal belief in the free and sacred nature of every individual is a direct legacy of the traditional Christian belief in free and eternal individual souls. Without recourse to eternal souls and a creator God, it becomes embarrassingly difficult for liberals to explain what is so special about individuals. Now, his point is not that individuals are not special, and he does not recommend that we return to the Christian story, but I want to point out that it may well be that the whole idea of the equal dignity of all people may become a rare insight if we're not very, very careful. And for us, it means it is all the more urgent for the Church of Jesus Christ to rediscover the art of cherishing people whom we might otherwise ignore or deride or exploit. How do we do that? We'll go back to James. Because James points us to Jesus. Verse 1, hold no partiality or uh, do not exhibit partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, do you see in verse 12, he talks about the law of liberty. And then finally in verse 13, he speaks about mercy triumphing over justice. All of this is supposed to spark in the minds of a Christian the, the greater story of Jesus. Because of course, the remarkable thing about Jesus is it's, it's not just that God enters history and honors those whom we might otherwise deride, exploit, or ignore. It's that Jesus enters the world and himself becomes poor. St. Paul said it this way, just listen, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. As God, he's as obviously as rich as you can be. But when he became human, he became poor. And yet in his poverty, he was infinitely rich in faith. And he was infinitely rich in love for God. And he was infinitely the proper heir of the kingdom of God. And when you look at him, and the more you look at Jesus and his mercy to the poor, and the, the, the height of his moral vision, you will realize that where Jesus is rich in faith, we are poor in faith. And where Jesus is rich in love, we are often destitute of love, at least at our default settings. And where Jesus is the proper heir of the kingdom of God, you will realize that you and I have no intrinsic right to be heirs of the kingdom 
kingdom of God. And yet, that's why Jesus died. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. Poor to the point of dying as a criminal, derided, ignored, exploited upon the cross. And why did the God of the universe experience that? Why would he dare experience that? He experienced that so that he could make a remarkable and gracious and merciful exchange with us. He took our sin and our moral poverty upon himself so that he could give us his spiritual wealth. He was treated like an outcast of the kingdom so that he could make us undeserved as we are, heirs of the kingdom of God. And the more you realize that, Emmanuel, the more you let that story penetrate down into your soul, the more you'll realize that you're not loved because you're so attractive intrinsically to Jesus. No, you'll realize that Jesus loves you because mercy triumphs over justice. And as that goes down deep, you'll begin to look at other people in a new way. You'll be able to look at people and love them, not because they're useful to you, not because they're intrinsically attractive to you, but because you are loving with the overflow of the love you have received from the God of the universe. How we treat people is an indication of how deeply you've internalized the message of Jesus. How's that going? We live in a world that normalizes derision. In this world, run back to Jesus. And as you run back to Jesus, ask yourself a few questions. Whom are you tempted to despise? Who are the people you're tempted to ignore, dismiss, avoid? Who would be your cultural enemies? Try to identify that person and then practice bringing them to Jesus Christ and then meditate. How did Jesus relate to you when you were his enemy? How did Jesus relate to you when by all rights he should ignore you, overlook you, or judge you? How has Jesus treated you? And the deeper you reflect on that, the more you'll be empowered to love those people as yourself. Or another question, whom do you admire? Whom do you admire professionally? Whom do you admire politically or personally? What kind of person really compels you and attracts you? You need to know that about yourself because we often end up resembling the people we admire most. Do you admire those who are rich in faith and rich in love towards God? Or is my soul captivated by characteristics that could describe Pharaoh? Whatever it is that compels you, bring it to Jesus. Consider who he is and what he's done for you until your heart warms with gratitude to him. And as your heart warms with gratitude to him, you will find yourself admiring Jesus, cherishing Jesus. And the more you admire Jesus and cherish Jesus for what he has done for you, the more you will begin and we will all begin to resemble him and will be empowered to love others as ourselves. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. 
and I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.